0: If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 18 and uh, finishing out the chapter this morning. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word before us, and we ask that your Spirit would strengthen us all to hear strengthen me to speak, Lord, empower me to speak words of truth, words of, um, yeah, just the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of this truth. And so, unite our hearts to fear your name, grow us in you today. Lord, we need you. We need you to be at work in our hearts and in our minds for us to hear and to receive the goodness of your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if your family has certain things that they uh, enjoy doing every year around Christmas, maybe some traditions. Um, as a family, we don't really have any hard and fast traditions. We haven't really ever settled on anything big. But one thing we do enjoy uh, during the season is, is we tend to enjoy trying to find good light displays. Um, and Um, We have spent many a night uh, driving around, uh, maybe after browsing the internet before that to see where things are, uh, searching for, you know, that elusive Griswold-style house. And I actually believe that when we moved to Mason in 2011, a house that was in a Pepsi commercial, a national Pepsi commercial that had all the stuff going on, was not far from our house. I think we eventually found it. It was, a, you know, the full choreographed, everything going on. It was, it was pretty amazing. And actually, right near our house now, um, there is a family that goes a little over the top. They've got a big walking path through their backyard. They've got a fire pit and hot chocolate out every, I think, every weekend night for parents to stand there to warm themselves while they project everything on the set. They play Christmas movies, all kinds. Of, it's It's crazy. Um, There's a lot going on, and it's actually pretty impressive. But you know, in the midst of all of that, it's actually easy to see it and yet not give one thought to what this season's for and what's behind this season. Things become commonplace, and I think we can very easily miss what's actually important. It, It happens when when we become familiar with something, doesn't it? We, we don't always appreciate it as we should. And every year as we come to this time, to Advent, to Christmas, we, I, you know, we have something that's pretty familiar. And certainly there's a massive part of that that's very good. It's good to be familiar with the message of the gospel, with the message of Christ, of Christ come to earth incarnate to save us from our sins. But the problem is it becomes so familiar, we can miss the meaning and the wonder behind it all. And we just sometimes go through the motions. We can run the risk of missing the gravity and the goodness of what's set forth before us. And personally, I, for one, want to be better at not missing the glory of all that God has done. Um, it's, it's too easy to do that, of the, the gift of God for his people. And so as we look at this text this morning... I hope to actually open up and, and maybe unveil again for you the, the gift of God for us. And I'm going to do that through kind of this idea of a problem. Uh, and in many ways, there's two problems here in this text. There's a perceived problem, and then there's a very pervasive problem. So there's a perceived problem and a very pervasive problem that we all face. So look again at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, first, I want us to see the connection back to verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The genealogy gave for us the lineage of Jesus. It set that forth, and now we come to the actual event of the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But as we do come to that in verse 18, we also come to a problem. Now, what is that problem? Well, you have a young woman, Mary, who is betrothed to Joseph. Now, we don't use that word betrothed. Um, I've never had a conversation with anyone in in normal everyday life where they've talked about being betrothed. Um, So what that is, is it's, it's, it's a commitment to marriage that's really significant. It's more significant than what we would call engagement today, It was very firm, typically would last something around a year, where the young lady would stay with her parents, but would continue to build connection and build relationship with the one to whom she's betrothed, to her her future husband. Uh, All the while, they would do this, and and in many ways, the couple was counted as married. Many people, they they would just consider them as married, they'd call them husband and wife, but they were not living together, and, and nothing that traditionally comes with living together was happening. There was no consummation during betrothal, and we see that in the language of the text for us in Matthew, right? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. But something happened in that time period, okay? Something happened there. She was found to be with child. Now, in the Old Testament, there was strict punishment that could be inflicted for someone who was betrothed and became pregnant. Deuteronomy uh, 22. Starting verse 23, if there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, if you didn't catch that, even in the language of the sanction, it says because he has violated his neighbor's betrothed no, wife. He violated his wife. Even, even though they hadn't come together yet because she's merely betrothed, the, the language is wife. It's very significant. And that's how serious betrothal is. If, if you read just a little bit further on in Deuteronomy, in that same chapter, the, the same act, but with a non-betrothed woman, the, the punishment's not as severe. It's a different punishment because it's not considered marriage at that time. And so a, a, at this point, we can tell from this text that Joseph is not the biological father of the child that Mary has in her womb. So there's really only one logical and natural conclusion for Joseph to make at this point in time, isn't there? Mary's been unfaithful. This is a a scandal, or it very well could turn into a scandal quite quickly. So here we have the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. We've just gone through this uh, genealogy, this lineage that's full of not the most upright of people uh, in Jesus' line, and then we come to the birth, and you've got a young woman who's not fully married yet, and she has, she's pregnant. Now the text tells us, as readers, that this child was from the Holy Spirit, but in case you didn't know, Joseph's not reading the text, okay? He's actually living it in real time. And so his conclusion is she's been unfaithful. And so we come to verse 19, and it reads, And our husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I find this actually pretty amazing, the, the character of Joseph. He's a man of very high character, He's called her husband, and he is a just man. So he's righteous, he's upright. Probably what that refers to even more so is that he's very careful to follow the law of God. He's meticulous in following and observing and honoring the law, but he's not merely just or or righteous in some sterile and isolated sense. He is also merciful. He is unwilling to put her to shame. He cares deeply for Mary. And even with what had to have felt like betrayal and, and a punch in the gut in so many ways for him, he did not want to bring disgrace upon her. He didn't want that for her. And he simply drew the natural conclusion, and he, could, he, just, he couldn't work out any way in, in, in his mind to, to find out, how, how could I still take her to be my wife? She's violated our, our, our promise to one another, our pledge. She's violated that, that loyalty, that faithfulness. She's, she's with child. How, how, I can't do that. But he cared so deeply that, that I think he agonized over this Into into what to do. But he ended up resolving to divorce her quietly, and I really like how one person commented on this and, and brought out the point that it wasn't that Joseph was merciful apart from being just and righteous, but that his righteousness seeks expression in an act of mercy. They go hand in hand. Righteousness and mercy are together. He's reflecting Micah 6.8, isn't he? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You can see that in Joseph. Walking humbly, he's struggling with this. But you can also think of of this just a few chapters later in Matthew. This very child will grow up and share in a sermon on a mount things related to this, won't he? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. He shows that righteousness and mercy are together a part of what it means to have godly character. So Joseph's resolved to divorce her quietly, but even though he had resolved this course of action, and, and maybe you've had this, this issue before, He's, he, he goes, I know what I'm going to do, He can't. He can't do it. Okay, I I remember. However many years, five so years ago, I broke my leg. It was a pretty bad break, and I remember doing um, PT on the floor in our living room. And part of the PT was simply lift your leg. I will tell you, I was extremely resolved to lift my leg. My leg did not follow the same resolve that my mind had. And, you know, it didn't matter that eventually, eventually I got it with the Rocky Four soundtrack going behind me able to get my leg off the ground. But sometimes when you're resolved to do something, it still doesn't necessarily happen right away. And I think at this point he's resolved, but he's struggling with that decision. He's considered what this would look like, what this would mean. It's amazing. An angel of the Lord came to him in a sleep, in a dream, uh, and and the message, which is the focus of this appearance, because quite often when you have an appearance of an angel, you have this description of how dazzlingly brilliant the angel is. We have no description of this angel, because that's not the point. The point is the message the angel is bringing to Joseph, and it's very directive and to the point. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the heart of the message is Joseph, Mary didn't commit adultery. She was not unfaithful to you. This child is from the Holy Spirit. And this coincides perfectly with what we read of the message that's given to Mary in Luke. Luke chapter 1 And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And you know, when she's told this, her, her response is, "Okay, sounds great, but you know, I haven't been with a guy. I'm a I'm a virgin." And so she's told, that that made it clear that this child will be of miraculous intervention by the Spirit of God, and that was what Mary needed to hear perfectly at that time, and what Joseph needed to hear was exactly what this angel told him. And I think not only did he need to hear it, but I think in so many ways, and, and I know this is speculation, I think he longed to hear this. He longed to hear that this was something more. And I think by the angel beginning to call him Joseph, son of David, there's some comfort in that, but I think with that, it was also very purposeful because it framed the context of what he was going to hear with, remember who you are and think to the covenant. Think to the promise that has been made. Think of the prophecies that have been given to the people of Israel and now hear my message son of David. And so he's told not to fear. And in this, I, I read that not as, don't be, don't, don't be afraid of me, Joseph. It's actually, don't fear to take her. Don't hesitate. Uh, uh, the, the hesitation in your resolve to not divorce her, do the opposite and actually take her as your wife. Mary's done nothing wrong. And so, no matter what people might whisper or even say out loud as you're walking down the street, Mary did not commit adultery. She's chaste. The child in her is a miracle, and it's fulfilling a longing of the people of God. So, take her to be your wife. And with that command to not divorce her, he's also directed what to call this child. And then he wakes from his sleep, and it's very simply, right? It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He just, he did it. The perceived problem of adultery by his bride was solved by a word from the Lord. And so Joseph, we read, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He took her to his home, They refrained from marital relations until this child was born, and then he called the child Jesus. And one commentator wrote, he said, By giving the name, Joseph officially accepted the child. I have called you by name, you are mine, Isaiah 43, 1. This gave the child the status of a descendant of David. On this occasion, the the name is not to be left to the discretion of the parent, for this child is special and has a destiny that is to be expressed in the meaning of that name. And so then that leads us beyond this perceived problem that Joseph had that was very natural perception to make onto a very pervasive problem that applies to every natural-born person on this earth. So listen again to what the angel said to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So first, his name, Jesus. The angel gives the reason for that name, right? For, there's there's the reasoning, that's a because, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name Jesus is the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew uh, Yeshua or, or Joshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation. The name Jesus captures his, his purpose, his mission, his, his reason for being born. But let's look at that phrase again, for he, for he, it is this child who will save and no other. It is this one who does the saving. It's not another, it's him alone. In many ways, I think this echoes Jonah too. The great exclamation of the, of the prophet from the, the belly of the great fish, Jonah 2, 8. Those who pay regard to, to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the Lord's work. You could also go to Psalm 130. Verses 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. For he will do this. And what will this child and this child alone do? He will save. He will save. Now, the word can mean to merely to deliver from affliction or hardships, but it certainly takes on a greater meaning here, doesn't it? Partly because it says very clearly, He will save the people from their sins. He's delivering us from our iniquity, our transgression, our rebellion, our sin. And, and also know this, that when we are saved from something, we are also saved To something. So we're saved from our sin, but we are saved to life, to peace, to to, uh, a reconciled relationship with God, to joy in the Holy Spirit. That is what we're saved from that sin. We're saved from uh, damnation and saved to eternal life. It says, For he will save his people from their sins. There's a they in this, right? Who is the object of this saving? It is his people. John 10, verses 11, 14, and 15. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So here are those people. Jesus calls them his sheep. But I will tell you, all that we know of who those sheep are, in many ways, is they're whoever believes in him. Those who believe. They believe because they are sheep, but the way we know that they are sheep is because they believe. It's that person who is saved who will have eternal life. This call is given to all to come. For God so loved the world that everyone who, anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? So listen, God has provided for his people and it is in, it is by God and by God alone through Jesus that any of us are saved. And I think we have to remember that so many of us have a tendency to trust in something else. You know, maybe it's our strength, our knowledge, our pedigree, our works across the board. It could be the achievements, our reputation, our, our, our friends. It could even be our government leaders that we trust in to save us. But listen, none of those is able to deliver man from his chief enemy, the foe that is little by little destroying his very heart, namely sin, or as here sins, those of thought, word, and deed of omission, commission, and inner disposition. It takes no less than the atoning death of Jesus and the sanctifying power of His Spirit to cleanse hearts and lives. Listen, folks, do not fool yourself. Do not fool yourself into thinking that anyone or anything other than Jesus is able to save. Nothing else can save. Nothing. But also know this, that the offer is there. Anyone who believes who trusts, who repents and believes, you will be saved. Folks, this is the pervasive problem of mankind. It's sin. There was a perceived problem. There was a perceived problem of sin, wasn't there? But this is the real problem of sin, the one that's pervasive. It's in all of us. Our rebellion, our treason against God is our pervasive problem, and it took and it takes nothing less than Jesus The Son of David, the one who is God and man, a God come in flesh incarnate to deal with that sin. It can be none other than Jesus. Actually, the Heidelberg Catechism addresses that fact, I think, beautifully. Questions 16 and 17, it it asks this, question 16, why must he be a true and sinless man? So why must Jesus, why must our Savior be a true and sinless man? And the answer is, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. But no man, being himself a sinner, could satisfy for others. Okay, so it has to be a person of human nature to satisfy for sin, but we, we can't do it for anybody else. Romans 8, "...for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh." And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then question 17, why must he be at the same time true God? So we've established that he has to be man, but why must he also be true God? The answer, that by the power of his Godhead, he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath and so obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Now, folks, I share those two specifically and, 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 and laid out for you right there from the Heidelberg Catechism, one, because I want you to know the resources that are out there that beautifully answer questions that many of us have had, like, why does Jesus have to be God and man? Well, here's here's great answers, questions that have been answered by the church for hundreds and even thousands of years. The reality is, is Jesus, God incarnate, God who humbled himself, took on flesh for us to deal with our biggest and most pervasive problem, to deal with our sin, And it is he alone who can do that. And that should open our eyes with just wonder and praise that our creator God would do such a thing. Then if we look on in Matthew, Matthew added a bit to what the angel told Joseph for us, for readers. says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This was the fulfillment of prophecy. This birth was the fulfillment of prophecy, this specific manner in which it ha- happened of, it, uh, of a child being born to a virgin. It was prophesied hundreds of years before it ever took place, and what we see is God continues to show himself faithful and powerful enough to do what he said he would do and the text says he that this child would be called Emmanuel. Now if you notice, it does not say that Mary and Joseph call him Emmanuel. Okay? They shall call his name Emmanuel. This emphasizes the reality, and I think the fact that, that God came to his people in Christ Jesus. Okay, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came, he dwelt with us, he tabernacled with us, he, he tented with us, and at the end of Matthew, we're actually promised that he's also going to be with us to the very end of the age. See, in Christ, God is with us. And those who have turned to Him have Emmanuel. They have God with them. And that is a… a, a that's the greatest truth you can think of. That's the, that's the greatest gift you could ever open, is that you, as a believer in Christ, always have God with you. You know, maybe you get, like, a shirt you've just wanted for Christmas… And you try and wear it like every single day, but eventually you can't keep wearing it. It's not the same when you open the gift of Christ. He's with you all the time. All the time. So as we call him Emmanuel, as those who have been saved, we proclaim God's work. We proclaim the truth that God came to us in Christ Jesus. God came to us in the flesh to redeem us. So folks, this is what I don't want to miss myself. I don't want to miss the glory of this truth because it's familiar, because it's something that not only do we hear every year at this time, but we hopefully hear it every day. And I it to keep its, to keep its luster, to keep its glory, to keep the amazement of it. Because Christmas, every, really every day, is a day to celebrate the gift of God with us. Because that is a massive and glorious gift beyond all comparison. So my prayer and my, my desire is that we would be a people who keep this at the forefront of our lives forefront of our minds and our hearts who do not miss all that God has done for us who don't let this gift become commonplace for us and then I will say as well if you don't know this gift yet if you haven't had that joy of opening up the gift and being saved from sin and being saved to God with you this is it Jesus is the only one who can deal with this problem, the only one. So I'd lovingly plead with you, turn to him. Turn to him and experience the joy, the gladness, of knowing our Redeemer, of knowing that you are safe and secure in a God who would go to the lengths of taking on the frailty of human flesh in order to save a sinful and rebellious people. Just try and fathom that statement. It should leave us speechless and spellbound, and then let it lead us to worship to singing in praise because of all that He's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the gift of Christ. And we ask that You would open our eyes and our hearts more and more to the beauty and the wonder of that gift. And if there are any who don't know that gift now, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts and draw them to your side. Work this all for your glory and for our good and joy in the gift of God with us. We pray in his name. Amen.